Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It can be hard to think of a creative idea on demand. And James Montgomery Flagg had trouble thinking of one. But he was being paid to draw a magazine cover, so he pretty much did have to crank one out. What Flagg ended up with has to be one of the most well-known images in American history. The truth, though, according to historian Christopher Capizola, was that the image that he drew was pretty much just the face that he saw in the mirror. So James Montgomery Flagg is a commercial artist. He's a you know, sort of well-known artist who does an image of Uncle Sam for a magazine cover in 1916. And uh, the U.S. Army thinks that it will be an appealing military recruitment poster, and they reuse the image in 1917. Capizola is an associate professor of history at MIT and the author of the book Uncle Sam Wants You, World War I and the Making of the Modern American Citizen. Flagg had no idea that this gussied-up self-portrait that he made in 1916 was going to become a symbol of America, or that it would come at a time when the country was reaching a painful breaking point. It captures this idea of citizenship and obligation. Here's Uncle Sam, a representation of America, pointing at you, saying Uncle Sam wants you. In that case, to join the army, but in other cases, to conserve food, to buy war bonds. All of that kind of demand and obligation is placed directly on, on the person viewing that poster. In some sense, Uncle Sam did need some serious PR. It's hard to imagine now, amid debates about taxes and military involvement around the world and whether Medicare should expand, that once there wasn't much of a federal government to speak of in America. Um, The federal government had only a fraction of the number of employees. It lacked certain powers. The income tax was actually brand new and very few people paid it uh, a century ago. The army that the United States had was smaller than the army of Bulgaria. And of course, we had an older tradition of a National Guard and militia service, and we thought that that kind of volunteerism would be able to protect America in a time of national security. But when big world wars hit the scene, like the First World War, that older system just isn't big enough and strong enough and fast enough. Which is when everything changed. And an America largely organized by volunteer groups and churches and civic organizations started to become something different. Today, lots of us worry about those very sorts of civic bonds coming apart. In 2000, a book called Bowling Alone became famous for its description of a splintering American society, an America that wasn't just staying away from houses of worship or rotary clubs. No, things were so bad that Americans were bowling alone. And data suggests that in the last 20-ish years, it's gotten worse. Individual liberties are what matter to many of us now. But once in this country, group identities were the most important thing in many people's lives. Take, for example, a group which has mostly been forgotten to history called the American Protective League. Now, this was a volunteer group that had about 250,000 members during the war. And these were volunteers who enforced the draft. They were basically policing the home front, um, rounding up draft dodgers, making sure that's happening. 
they thought they would continue after the war was over, and they asked the Justice Department to stay on. The Justice Department had this small branch called the Bureau of Investigation. It would later become renamed the FBI. And the Justice Department, particularly under its uh, sort of young new head, J. Edgar Hoover, told the American Protective League, no, we've got this. Um, And this kind of power better resides in the federal government. Before the First World War, Capizola says, this was a country that frequently organized itself into militaristic groups and regional organizations, which often pressed for a more vigilante sort of justice. Then, pretty quickly, a new America began to emerge. And the sort of American that was so common pre-World War I turned into someone different, Capizola argues, a modern American. If those two people met each other, they would recognize one another. Uh, They would have the same symbols, the same language of America. But what they would talk about was, in fact, actually a different America itself. Um, That the everyday experience of someone a century ago would have been uh, sort of going outward from their local circle of family, community, and voluntary organizations that they lived in. Uh, And those were not just hobbies or side projects, but important things that structured Americans' public life. Hmm. Um, whereas today, if we do have those interests, we, they are side interests. Um, they are sort of outside communities. Uh, and we don't turn to those places first um, when it comes to engaging one another as citizens in this shared American project. What was it that made you think World War I, that was when the modern American citizen, that was some kind of turning point where something shifted and who we are came into being and who we were kind of got left behind? I think for me, it was a realization that this was a turning point. Um, That certainly we know that war has shaped Americans' lives in the 20th century. And and looking back at the Second World War, that's so obvious. But it made me wonder, well, you know, when did that that shift happen? Um, And I think that it's in this moment that you can watch a kind of 19th century American way of life of of towns and villages and a 20th century world of cities and media and strong government power actually colliding with one another. Um, And it's and all in the space of about 19 months. So uh, um, you write that in the uh, early 1900s, being an American meant, quote, putting duty, obligation and responsibility before individual rights and freedoms. How is like a culture of obligation different from the kinds of discussions we have now about like it should be my right to and like fill in the blank, depending on the person, marry whoever I want, have a gun, you know, whatever it is. Well, I think you've hit it right on the head, which is that that's where you would start. Uh, And of course, rights mattered to people 100 years ago, too. Uh, But it wasn't necessarily the place that they started, uh, that they might have started with, what what do I owe my country? That's um, not that people, you know, had were different fundamentally. It's that they had been brought up differently. They had been taught in schools and and churches and other places uh, that this is the first question you ask. Um, And those obligations include um, things like military service, jury duty, paying taxes. But they were broader than that, too. Um, It was loyalty. It was um, uh, obedience to to authority. Some of these are really um, things that we would call coercive a century later, uh, but that were taken um, for granted uh, back in the day. 
Um, you write about the pressure that people face to 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 be obedient, um, and then like to circle back to the Uncle Sam thing that we talked about, to to fight in uh, the war, to contribute somehow to the war. Can you paint a picture of like what that pressure looked like? So for people who were opposed to the war or just didn't think it was in their interest, um, they might have been hesitant to to join, um, hesitant to you know suddenly. Pl- plant some new crops or, or give, um, you know, give money, buy bonds. Uh, and it wasn't some police officer or FBI agent who came to their door uh, to enforce this. Um, in fact, there, there isn't the, the manpower, the, the, the personnel to do that. Um, and, but what does show up on your doorstep is your next door neighbor. Um, who has, um, you know, sort of turned the local women's club into a food conservation club and wants to know whether you will sign a pledge saying, I will conserve food, right? Or a banker who might actually be the person who owns the the title to your house might come by and say, well, uh, I think you have enough money to buy a bond. Um, aren't you a good citizen? And those kinds of informal coercions got sort of written out of history. Um, but when I was doing my research, I thought, well, this is this is the key to the puzzle, right? This this is what actually gets Americans motivated. That also seems like to now such a line being crossed. Here we, we think so much about privacy, but the notion that like a banker looks at your bank account and is like, yeah, he could totally afford to buy a bond and then shows up your house, as you say, owning the title to it and saying, I really think you should do this with this kind of almost implicit undercurrent of you better do it um, or who knows what could happen here. Mm-hmm. That's that's it's like that's like very hardball tactics, I feel like. It was, but it was also, I think, from the banker's perspective in that situation, um, he, he or she, mostly he felt he was supporting the war effort, right, um, was doing uh, their national duty um, and that the other person who wasn't uh, buying the bond was 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 the dangerous individual. You talk about sometimes how this pressure escalated essentially into mob violence. Do you want to give an example or two of that happening? So the added complication is that there isn't in a lot of communities a strong uh, federal police force. There isn't necessarily a professional police force. But there is also a local tradition of policing and keeping order. Um, and when that intersects with the politics of the war, things can get very ugly for anyone who's outside of the war effort. Sometimes that's people who opposed it, uh, pacifists and others. It could be uh, based on your ethnicity. Uh, German Americans and others were scrutinized. It could be uh, workers who've gone on strike in a war factory, then might find not just a friendly visit from a banker or a women's club officer. Um, but in fact, a, a nighttime visit um, by a crowd um, that we would describe as a vigilante mob, but would have thought of themselves as policing and enforcing the terms of citizenship. How is the state at this time changing and growing? Like you write about all these anti-German laws that were passed. I just wonder if in part of um, mobilizing for the war, the American government became a little bit more of what we know the American government to be, like more robust, bigger, more courts, more just stuff to enforce things. 
That is absolutely true, that in the space of just about two years, the federal government takes on tasks that it had never done before, either that it hadn't thought it needed to or that it didn't have the authority to. So it mobilizes the uh, the industrial base of the entire country, um, getting sort of corporate executives on board. It actually nationalizes the railroad and coal industries, the two biggest uh, forces in the U.S. economy, something almost unimaginable today. Uh, it um, it you know, so raises funds, it raises a, a massive army. Um, I always say it also set the time, right? This is when daylight savings time is first adopted as an really? experiment. Okay. Right? So the idea that um, the federal government is a new presence in your everyday life, um, I think, is captured by that moment, right? They can actually turn the clocks back and forward um, uh, with, with new power. I just wonder if you can give a sense for people you know, this is a time that I don't think we think about very much. Um, But just give a sense of what that anti-German sentiment was like, that both groups in towns like mobilized against, and then also the federal government was like passing laws against. There was a fear based on some evidence uh, that Germans would sabotage or undermine the American war effort. Um, And there were some 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 instances of this that didn't have a big impact on on the U.S., um, but it made people suspicious of their neighbors, um, of their of their enemies. Uh, this is a time when there are, in fact, actually a lot of Germans and German Americans in the United States. Before the war, they were not considered a dangerous enemy, um, but all of America's fears uh, about the war and even about um, outsiders and others get targeted at Germans and German-Americans. Now, some of those people are citizens of Germany. That means they're enemy aliens. Okay. Um, and all of the countries in World War I uh, placed restrictions on the, on the enemy aliens who lived among them. Uh, the U.S. is not exceptional in that regard. What amazed me um, was that it, it revealed something that we forget, right? That uh, we now today think of Ellis Island as this symbol of welcoming, of, of a melting pot of our diverse history. And then you remember that, in fact, Ellis Island is not just designed to bring people into the United States, but to keep them out. Uh, and in the First World War, immigration drops drastically. Uh, Ellis Island is empty. And some federal officials decide, well, it would be a good place to uh, intern enemy aliens. Um, so it's this sort of forgotten chapter that I think says a lot both about that moment but also about our ambivalent relationship to welcoming and limiting immigrants today. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Chris Capazola, professor of history at MIT. He's the author of the book, Uncle Sam Wants You, World War One and the Making of the Modern American Citizen. Um, we talked about the kind of growth of the state as one step on the road to this like birth of this new modern America after World War One. Um, let's talk about another piece of that, which is the growth of new kinds of organizations. The ACLU is born during this time. The NAACP had existed, but then just grew like gangbusters. Um, why? Why did these organizations, and these are very new and different kinds of organizations in some ways from like the church groups or, you know, the kinds of clubs that people had belonged to, why did they become so powerful and so popular? I think in a lot of ways, the powerful federal government that is set up during the war 
also generates its own powerful opposition um, that stands for, in, uh, in particular, individual rights. Those might be the individual rights of uh, pacifists and, and wartime opponents, of, of publishers and others, um, many of whom are defended by the group that then renames itself as the ACLU in 1920. Um, they actually got their start defending conscientious objectors uh, mm. during the war. Um, or defending the individual rights of African Americans. Um, the NAACP uh, had existed since about 1909, um, and it was advocating for, for black rights, but it was a pretty small organization. Um, but it starts to see the need to, uh, to make public protest, to defend publication, and particularly to respond to the violence that a lot of black communities are experiencing during and, and right after the war as individual black soldiers or veterans or black migrants to northern cities are sort of, you know, advocating for their rights, the NAACP becomes a more logical destination for them uh, to make their claims. It's really interesting because you do think about this war as like the starting point of modern America, the lasting power of the NAACP and the ACLU to reshape American society. You see it now. Who, like, you know... Who has been filing the lawsuits in opposition to uh, the Trump administration? The ACLU. I mean, as you, you know, if we're talking about like here 100 years ago, there was this group in opposition to the government. Not a lot's changed in 100 years. I think that's true. I think they lost a lot more victory, you know, lost a lot more battles than they won Hmm. a century ago. Um, And these were small organizations, many of them hounded out of existence um, by federal agencies or lawsuits. But the seeds, I think, had been planted for a new way of thinking about how to defend individual rights, how to articulate them, um, and how to defend them in courts, but also how to make a case for them in new media, first of newspapers and and popular culture, and then, of course, in the 1920s through radio and eventually through all kinds of means. When you look at World War I and um, think about our current political situation today. What do you feel like that you know helps you see what's happening today in a different light? Because you sort of know about this story of like, as you as you argue, the making of the modern American state 100 years ago. Historians who are looking at today want every American to know that uh, this is not the first time we have been divided. Uh, about political issues and about really fundamental questions. How big should our federal government be? What, are the, what is the proper balance between liberty and security? Uh, I think looking at the First World War shows us the danger of thinking through those fundamental questions, which have been there since 1776, through the lens of crisis. Um, and World War I really is a national crisis. Um, it's a global catastrophe. Um, even though the First World War poses a real crisis for Americans, uh, they nevertheless um, act in more extreme ways than our constitutional structure authorized or even our political values really took to heart. And I think, uh, you know, the people of World War I um, would look at us today and say, Yes, you are a fundamentally divided society, um, but um, learn from us um, 
to take a take a deep breath, right? Um, and go back to your founding principles and your founding questions, and go back to the places where you are that that work for you to work this out. Um, you know, in our communities, in civic organizations, in schools, uh, churches, and other faith organizations, things that in the last thirty or forty years we've hollowed out. Um, I think would um, you know, people a century ago would say, well, why don't you talk it out there? Um, and I think we, you know, we have to kind of rebuild some of those those everyday institutions. Hmm. Christopher Capazzola is the author of Uncle Sam Wants You, World War One and the Making of the Modern American Citizen. He's also an associate professor of history at MIT. Chris, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Ruben, Ruben, I've been thinking, said his wifey If you want to read more about Americans' fear of Germans and German-Americans during World War I, and they were often considered a different and barbaric race with a language that should be shunned, we've got resources for you at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Hannah Ubley, Nadia Lewis, and Chloe Lemelhay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.